Welcome to the Moose Room, everybody. OG3 is here, and we have a special guest. We've been waiting to have our guest on today for a while. Brad has said his name a bunch of times in this podcast. Uh, Roger Moon is with us today. Roger is an entomologist, used to work for the University of Minnesota, and now is retired, but as he said before we started, very active, still doing things like this and helping us out whenever he can. Thanks for being here, Roger. Oh, glad to be invited. Thank you. So today... Roger's here because we're talking about bugs, we're talking about um, flies. Joe, Go ahead. May, yep. may I cut in? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We we have a guest, so that means we have a couple of questions we need to ask before we really dive into things. Uh, that's Uh-oh. true. I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. Emily, <laughs> go for it. I'm here to keep you honest. I know. Roger, we have two super secret questions that we ask every guest. We do keep a running tally of who answers what. Brad and Joe will tell you that there is a right answer to each question. And I'm here to tell you that they are liars. So (laughs) your first question is what is your favorite breed of beef cattle? Oh, black baldies. Oh, okay. Very nice. We, we, we will accept that answer. Good answer. (laughs) Black (laughs) baldies. They're surging a little bit. They are. They are. They are surging. Uh, The the totals now are uh, Angus at eight, Herefords at six, black baldies at four, melted Galloway's at two. Then we've got Brahmin, Stabilizer, Gelvy, Scottish Highlander, Keanina, Charlay, Simital, Nalore, Jersey, and Normandy all at one. (laughs) Wow. That, yeah, black baldies are really, they're strong. strongly in third now, I would say. Mm-hmm. So, All right. Well, Roger, you can maybe guess what the second question is, and that is, what is your favorite breed of dairy cattle? Oh, I, 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 I can't pass up the soft brown eyes of a jersey. Yes, that is the correct answer. Yes. There you go, Roger. There, there are no wrong answers. But... Well, <laughs> you made Joe and Brad very happy. Okay. Well, you know, uh, from my perspective, they're all about the same until you get into the into the zebu breeds. From a bug perspective, from a tick perspective, all of the European breeds are about the same, about equally susceptible, irritable. And when you get the droopy ears and the dewlap and all that of the zebus, then then you get a little more resistance to things. But up here, we don't see too many of them. I'm all for a Jersey vote whenever whenever we can get it. We're creeping back up the leaderboard. Holstein's at 11. Jersey's yeah, at well. 9. Brown <laughs> Swiss at 5. Montbelliard at 3. Dutch Belted at 2. And Normandy at 2. I, I think Brad, Brad has been given too many votes on that list. <laughs> <laughs> it's very possible. Yeah. There's some collusion going on. Maybe yeah, a little probably. bit. Yeah. Yeah. We, we pick our guests very selectively to make sure that this total ends up in our favor. But all right, let's get into it. We're talking flies, fly prevention. Having, having fun. Dairy, beef, doesn't matter. You know, we, we really want to talk about fly prevention because we, we've discussed this before, but, but really having someone who knows it inside and out is the way to go on this show. And where we need to start is trying to remind everybody of the flies we're concerned about. Like what are the what are the different flies that we really need to be watching for? I'm sorry, that's a question. Yes. Well, okay. For you, <laughs> walk it, us it, through it. it. It was a perfect cue to my introductory bugs 101 lecture. Um, it depends on where the animals are, not what kind of animals they are, 
dairy or beef, but how they are housed. The, 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 the deal is that if cattle are out on pasture grazing, beef or dairy, they're defecating, causing cow pats to emerge. The, the Finnish call them sliding mines, but those little isolated droppings, and they could be, you know, the size of a discus, uh, the, the, those things are where horn flies develop. They are the economically problematic species for grazing cattle. These, these horn flies, um, they don't live on the horns, they live on the bodies, they suck blood, uh, but you can trace them back to a meadow muffin somewhere. Okay, so if you're grazing, you're gonna have horn flies, most likely. On the other hand, if you've got confined animals, they could be a replacement calves in a dairy operation, they could be a replacement heifers penned, and certainly where, where beef cattle are confined, you're gonna accumulate feed and manure and urine, and if the rainfall is right, uh, you're likely to have stable flies. That's the other blood sucker out there. That's the one that causes the cows to stop. It'll cause them to bunch together, beef or dairy. Uh, the flies don't care about what the product is coming from the cattle. All they want is the blood. So cattle managers should be thinking about which of the two habitats do I have around? And usually they have both. So if you're talking prevention for horn flies, there isn't much you can do out on the pasture in the range. Uh, but for the confined animals or feed debris left over during winter or from winter, uh, if that material can be disposed of quick, it'll knock the knees out from underneath the stable flies and you'll, you'll keep the cattle more comfortable and more profitable during the summer. That's the thing that I always think about with, especially with stable flies, is that we're just trying to keep them from building momentum. Mm -hmm. Because if you can, if you can really knock it down right away, then you're way ahead of the game when it comes to stable flies. Now, Roger, my big question when we're talking producers is, can you rely on cattle behavior to really tell you what fly you're dealing with and is the biggest problem? I think so. Uh, um, and, and, and for a long time, Jack Campbell, my predecessor in Nebraska, and others have talked about economic thresholds and counting critical numbers and somehow doing something when the numbers exceed thresholds. I argue life is much easier if you just watch your animals. They will show you behaviors bunching mainly uh fly aversion behaviors and, and they're telling you that they're bothered and at that point you know you have a problem whether you can intervene and do something quick uh or should have thought things through a month earlier is another issue but if you realize that the cattle are bunching because they're being attacked mainly by stable flies um stable flies will occur out on pastures horn flies will cause bunching too but generally uh, if you see them lifting their legs and stomping, switching their tails, twitching their flanks, milling around in groups, fighting for the center, because that's where the fewest flies are. If bunching is happening, that's that's telling you you're probably being bothered by stable flies. That's not perfect, but you can do that from a truck and probably be right nine out of 10 times. Perfect. I mean, that that that's one thing that I I think is it's nice to hear something so practical. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, you don't need to bring everybody in and count flies and, and discover economic threshold or not, which is important for research. And we need to know that. But that on a day to day, a producer doesn't have time to, to do that. So being able to rely on cattle behaviors, that's huge. I, I love that we can do that. Or you can hire my interns. They're out in the pasture right now counting flies. <laughs> Roger, we are still counting flies here. No kidding. Oh, we yeah. are. Yeah. yeah, there's been some heavy influence on Morris from Roger. There's still a, there's still a cowback sitting there too. So, no. The the next question for me is is one that I get when we talk about flies a lot with producers. Producers are asking me, okay, 
how far do these flies travel? And if it's really far, how how concerned do I have to be that that I get on the same page with my neighbors and they're treating flies as well so that I don't have a problem? Yeah. Okay, let's go back to stable flies. I and some people in Nebraska did a study where they had uh, hay, hay rings, debris rings left over. Uh, and we had another study in mind and it crapped out totally. But what we ended up doing was dusting though the debris around the hay, hay rings. And then we set up traps and looked, at, looked for uh, bright glowing flies, picked up the dust that we left on the piles. We found them out to five miles. We got probably 75% within one mile. So there's always a few, you know, notoriously just gone flying insects in any, in any population. But if, if, if you're going to talk to your neighbors, I would say over the fence is close enough. If your neighbor is producing flies, you're going to see them on your cattle and vice versa, right? So you could treat your cattle with some sort of a topical insecticide that will kill the adult flies. They're coming back over the fence. I mean, you're not sending them away, but they're coming, re replenishing what you killed with what you put on the cattle. Um, maybe, maybe a quarter of a mile to half a mile, I think is reasonable. And, uh, you know, if you're sitting down at the coffee shop talking with somebody else who's feeding cattle over the winter, hey, I'm going to do something to get rid of my hay pile this spring. Uh, why don't you join me and see if together we can reduce the number, the misery of our of our herds collectively? Yeah, that sounds perfect, because I think that that's the question that I haven't been able to answer in the past is, well, how far out do you have to consider neighbors when you're talking about flies? And I think that is perfectly reasonable to go a quarter to a half mile. And like you said, just uh, find those people at the coffee shop and ask them uh, if they're willing to jump on board with you. Uh, one complimentary idea, if I can inject, taking it out of the barn or taking it out of the dry lot and parking it a short distance away. I'm talking about the debris now. That stuff is going to continue to produce flies and they're going to be coming back to where the cattle are. These flies come out and they go, where am I? And they go in all directions uh, and they settle down where cattle are. And so just moving it out of the barn or out of the dry lot and, and letting it sit somewhere else. Uh, dude, spread it, incorporate it to the extent that you can to try to reduce the water content and in turn make it unsuitable for the maggots, which are actually developing in that debris. That's where the adult flies come from. It's little, little maggots like, like you'd see in your garbage can, although they're different. Anyway, so, you, so if, if you're going to do sanitation, you need to really dispose of the material thoroughly and not just move it and transport it to your neighbor's place. <laughs> yeah. And so, and those herds that are outwintering their cows or heifers and they just leave it there or post it up to compost like yep. we have done here roger that is i know a breeding heaven i've chewed you out a couple of times for that <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah it's a it, uh, what you really if you're if you're trying to compost you really want hot compost get you a temperature probe and you want to see that the the the, the core or like a foot under the surface to be about 140 degrees fahrenheit or hotter Okay, we, we have shown with, with poultry manure and, uh, um, and the complement, we've seen that non-composting straw piles at Morris, composting matters. If, if you get it churned, aerated, and the moisture content right, you can render it uh, unpro unproductive of flies within four weeks, a month. Okay, on the other hand, if you let it sit there, they'll keep producing that pile, even though there's no cattle around. The organic matter in there will still nurture maggots. The adult flies will find that pile and lay their eggs in it, and they'll continue to produce for, produce for two to three more months. 
I think that, yeah, we're talking a lot about prevention and this is adds into what we always talk about on the show, which is management strategies and being clean, providing you all sorts of preventative benefits for your cows. And that's a huge point. And I don't know why I haven't thought about it, that they just can't just move it just a little bit and expect it to, to do something, especially when you say that these flies can fly up to five miles away. So uh, yeah, I don't know why I've never thought of that before. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I think I and my colleagues over the last 10 or 20 years have started to really appreciate what debris management is about and recognize that simply piling it up and letting it stack isn't, isn't sufficient. You've, you've really got to spread it. And, and here, here's, here's, the, here's the conflict. In spring, uh, I think uh, many of your in your audience are busy getting seed in the ground. That's the primary chore. Once things are planted, then secondary chores can come in. And manure disposal is always going to be secondary. That crop's got to be in the ground. The, pro- the conflict is that you need a place to spread it if you're going to spread it. And if you just planted your available ground with seeds, you got no place to go with that when, with your spreader. And so that, that that's a that's a fundamental conflict. And uh, I, I I think in op- for operations that are motivated, they can they can uh, work a composting system into their routine to buy them some time so that those that debris material is not producing flies uh, at the onset of the season and carrying off into August. Uh, and then you can you've prevented fly breeding in the stacked manure. And in turn, you've got some time at, at, at the end of the growing season uh, to dispose of it by spreading it. That's kind of the strategy that I'm going into. And I'd be interested in hearing if any of your producers think that might work or are doing it already. You know, there's lots of the way ahead of me. There are some people that do that. They they are very active in, in composting and being ahead of the game there. There's also plenty of people that are itchy in the spring to do something and they know they can't get in the field yet. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's not a hard push to get someone to do it, I don't think. Brad, Brad what do you guys do with, with your organic material and all your, your bedded packs that have been there all winter? Not the right thing. Oh no 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 no! Uh, Brad, you you've got you've got a, a bedded compost pack barn. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That 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 is a sweet solution. We we actually looked at flies in in your bedded compact barns, and we couldn't find nary any. It's it's right. like the composting renders it useless for the flies, and that's a good thing. Yeah. When we're using sawdust in in what Roger was talking about, there are no flies in that at all when you're using it as a compost barn. So that's number one. Our outwintering lots, well, that's a different story, you know? We're here on June and we, we have some cows in our outwintering lot still on that pack. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's gonna be generating stable flies like crazy. So we're- Well, uh, think about this one, Brad. I, I, I don't know, am, am I supposed to be helping Brad here on the show? Yeah, you can I, help me, yes. <laughs> Okay. Uh, seriously, put put those cows on a new bedding pack, free up the old bedding pack, and deal with that debris, which which is is uh, a lot of organic matter and moisture yes. in it left over from mm-hmm. the winter, and uh, put those cows on on new bedding, and uh, catch up with them a month later. Yeah, we could certainly do that. We have if if you've got the ground. I mean, there, there's right. a limit. You know, everybody's yeah. got shortage of space. So That's so my thought. my question moving on, Roger, is if you. Th- if you do a good enough job cleaning and getting all that organic material taken care of in the right way, do you think you can do a good enough job on, on a standard operation that you don't have to treat 
you don't have to do some of our other other go-tos when it comes to fly control? <laughs> How good is good? <laughs> I can tell you, I, I, I'm strongly certain that that if the, the, the practical debris management can be carried out, there will be far fewer stable flies than there would otherwise be. Whether there are few enough to have the cattle, you know, sitting out I, 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 idyllically on, on, on the ground for the summer, rather than bunched up and bothered, I don't know. But I can, I, I can tell you, if I do believe that if you practice source reduction to the extent, and that's what we're talking about right now, to, to the extent that's practical, you'll be better off. If you have to treat the cattle with some sort of an insecticide or the premise with some sort of a residual insecticide, it will delay the time that you have to start treating and it will shorten the time in the year that you have to keep treating. Uh, I've, I've, I've spent too many years counting flies on cows and I have a sense of the numbers through the season. And usually around here, July 1st, things start getting miserable. July and August, but when, when you get a little bit of cool weather uh, in September, uh, the numbers of drop offs. And, 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 and actually, the same for horn flies. The numbers are, are bothersome for two months. So if, if, if cattle managers are thinking about getting through the misery, think July in the months of August, um, anticipate and keep your eyes on the animals. And then uh, winter will save you. <laughs> so, what you think of it? That's how I've always thought about it. If you can operate clean enough and take care of that organic material you can delay how long it is until you have to start treating mm -hmm. and you you you're saving money because you you may only have to do it once or twice rather mm -hmm. than three or four mm -hmm. times mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll ask you the same question that i that i asked one of your colleagues dave boxler uh, when i had a chance to talk to him if you have your cows let's just say you have cows what's your ideal uh, treatment schedule and product to use, and you don't have to get into specifics. But if we talk about porons, ear tags, feed through, like mm -hmm. what are what are what's your ideal way to handle everything? Okay, this comes back to which kind of fly you're trying to control. If horn flies are your target, and the only way you know what's coming is what came last year, right? So keep your eyes this year to to the people that are managing right now. Think ahead. If horn flies are a problem. If it's practical, I think you could get through a season with one or maybe two porons. Trouble is, you got to run them up, run through the chute, you know. I, I think I, I, because, uh, and, and the active ingredient of interest to me is permethrin. Uh, that's the AI that, that, that seems to persist long enough. It's a synthetic pyrethroid, P E R M E T H R I N, permethrin. Producers, I think would be best off to pick a, an application method that's convenient for their operation, but pay attention to what the active ingredient is. And uh, ear tags, you know, slap them in and turn them out. Range producers do that. It's easy. You get a whole season sort of until resistance gets in your way. Uh, same, same with, uh, I, I really think if horn fly is your target, you're talking grazing cattle now, and uh, you have to watch for a restriction for some, some materials on dairy cattle. Um, right, lactating cows, not everything's registered for them. Uh, but I, I think that would probably be the simplest. If you can pour on, second choice would be uh, would, would be a, uh, uh, an ear tag. My first choice would be would pour on because it's, it's not going to last as long, but long enough to get you through that two-month window. Up here, we're lucky, you know. And, and the, the range, range of Texas or New Mexico or where have you, where the season's all year, really. 
that that's a different story. But up here, we can get away with a short time. And what we're getting by 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 treating with a temporary product like a poron is we're we're not selecting for resistance so long. So we're increasing the chance that we're going to be able to use that permethrin again next year, because once once that flies have evolved resistance to an insecticide it's really slow to go away and we don't have a whole lot of other stuff in the pipeline so i, I urge that we be conservative keep those things when the cattle are really miserable so we have something in our back pocket we can use uh and and do it prudently so we can continue to have it in the, in the following years yeah so i have a question roger um and joe you can cut this out if i'm going way off track here this is going to go off into the weeds and i'll bring it back you know, this worried. year we've been hearing a lot about cicadas and, and I was learning about how they're on these like 13 and 17 year cycles where they're just like really heavy every 17 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious if any of these major, you know, insects and pests that we're talking about, do they have any cycles like that? I mean, I know weather impacts its season of the year, uh, but is there any, you know, sort of a phenomena uh, type situations that we need to be aware of with, with any of these like that. No, Emily, think of it this way. What's the generation time for a cow? A couple of years, right? Yeah. These flies can do their business in two weeks. So what we're seeing in the field is turnover all season long, which is why, as, as Joe is mentioning, stable flies will build up and build up and build up. That's because you're getting overlapping generations and they continue to reproduce. So no, the reason we have uh, cicadas is that it takes them 13 or 17 years, depending on their population, to actually go from egg to adult and come back out and play in the woods, right? These, these flies are out in two weeks, three weeks. What, what we do see is, is uh, in fact, I remember <laughs> one time, Brad, I was out at Morris and uh, the, the dean of the, or the director of the experiment station was out there for some event. And he was complaining about where are all these flies coming from, Roger? <laughs> but he, he, he was noticing that there was an outbreak of them. Uh, and so from year to year, we can see, depending on the weather, uh, we can see numbers build up to, you know, mosquitoes aren't too bad this week. Right. That's sort of a reaction. Uh, or, geez, where did all these flies come from? But, it, but it, it, it's a short-term things like the weather patterns rather than longer-term things like, like generations, Emily. We've mentioned resistance a couple of times now, and uh, I'm getting the impression that there's there's not a whole lot of hope when it comes to resistance uh, and developing resistance in our fly populations. On the internal parasite side, we've been talking about a concept of refugia, where mm -hmm. we purposely do not treat certain cows mm -hmm. uh, to lessen the, the pressure on developing resistance. And then providing a population that can also compete with potential resistant populations. Mm -hmm. Is there anything like that going on on the fly side? I, well, I, we talk about it, but I don't know that anybody's done re research to, to answer the question. Uh, the, the equivalent is, is if many of your producers are growing corn. They're using uh, um, um, BT corn. EPA requires that they have a refuge. It could be a refuge in a bag or a refuge in space. But anyway, it's the same idea. You leave uh, uh, something out there for the susceptibles to breed in. And then when they emerge, they go out and they mate, mate with the resistant ones. The heterozygotes, maybe getting too technical, but the heterozygotes are susceptible. So you can drive resistance genes down by, by the refuge idea. I don't know that anybody has really demonstrated that with cattle, but it makes a lot of sense to me. 
So if, if you're a dairy operator, um, maybe skip treatments on your replacement heifers. Think of them as, as a refuge. Let them breed some horn flies, okay? They'll recover. Uh, what you really want to do is protect the cows and the growing calves. And so if you, if you have a, a refuge for horn flies now with the, 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 the grazing replacements, uh, that concept might work. I don't know about a cow-calf operation. How do, you, how do you decide who gets treated and who doesn't? I mean, they all bunch together and they're, you know, any topical thing that you put on those cattle is going to spread from one animal to the other. Uh, unless you've got them penned separately. Uh, I'm not sure that concept would apply, but it's, it's, an, it's a really interesting idea, Joe. Really interesting idea. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to think out of the box as we move here, because like you said, I, I think we develop resistance so quickly and it takes so long to go away. And mm -hmm. with we're kind of running out of products to 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 go on, we we you know Dave Boxer and I talked to me. He was talking about you know we need to really rotate modes of action on our ear tags, mm -hmm. and yes. and and that seems like probably the most clear thing that needs to be done. Is, is there anything like that when we're not talking about ear tags? When we're talking about porons, is there a sure. way to to rotate? In concept, yes. Uh, the, the, the idea is going from brand X to brand Y of the same active ingredient is not rotating. You need to be rotating, as you said, Joe, between groups of active ingredients. So what active ingredients are there for uh, application on, on uh, dairy cows? I think you've got pyrethroids, and they are all more or less the same in, in terms of, of resistance potential. Uh, Brad, are there any OPs, organophosphates, that are registered for lactating cows? Not that I know of. Or maybe premise sprays. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, you know, you, you maybe don't have to rotate actives in the same formulation, but you could pour on cattle, uh, and then next time when you need it, go go to a premise spray, something like that. But, uh, you know, out, 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 on, out on the range or, you know, on, on pasture situations, uh, I know there is, I, I think there's an organophosphate, uh, what is it? Um, I'm having a, a, a mind block right now. Stylophos, Rabon, and Diazinon. Those are, those are two compounds that are, that are listed. Oh, as an aside, uh, uh, Joe, I don't know if you post readable things on this, on this podcast, but there is a, a national veterinary entomology website uh, that people can go to. And it, uh, the reason I'm bringing this up now is from state to state, things that are registered differ. And to comply with EPA laws, uh, you know, rules, you, you, the producers need to use what's registered in their respective state. And so you can go to that website and say, oh, I live in South Dakota. Okay, so that subsets everything that's registered in South Dakota. Uh, and in turn, you can shop for the kinds of active ingredients and then do what you're talking about, Joe. Say, okay, I, I used a pyrethroid last time, um, maybe last month or last year. I'm going to rotate. Uh, we don't think that mixtures make sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense to have a mixture of an organophosphate and a pyrethroid, and maybe some of the ectins uh, in, in the same tank mix. The, the, the crop growers have tried to do that, and that's that really you're better off to rotate uh, and have have a, a mosaic on the landscape of different materials used in different places, and that seems to be slowing resistance down faster than than uh, ganging up on them. I don't know how you can get that that. Uh, uh, um, URL out for that website, but but I would I would urge producers to look for veterinary entomology, uh, and I think Google will hit you there. I should do that so that I know what I'm talking about better. Oh yeah, I'll get it in the show notes, and I think that that that's a great website that I I've been to a couple of times. And oh, have you? Cool. Yeah, and it, it it's super helpful. 
Uh, I had to learn a lot of this on my own and after school. And uh, yeah, I was searching for anything that I could find. And that was a very helpful website. You know, as we talk about this, resistance is an issue. There are products available. Rotate if you can. I mean, there's pretty clear product recommendations. And I think there's not a whole lot of debate on that. What I hear debate on a lot is whether or not our parasitic wasps work and do any good for us. Do you have a feeling on that, Roger? Yes, I do. Uh, 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 truth be known, one of my past graduate students works for one of the parasitic wasp vendors, and we've had long discussions about this. Uh, my view is that for the pasture, this is, comes back to which kind of fly you fight. If you're paying attention to horn flies and face flies, which are the other species that come out of meadow muffins in, in the pasture, dung pads, there's parasitic wasps. You can't release enough of them. And because the pats are being produced, Serially, the, the wasps that you release won't keep up with those flies. The parasitic wasps are really rare naturally, and it's very difficult to operationally raise the numbers and get benefits of fly control out in the pastures. In the feedlots, though, uh, dry lots, calf pens, the places where animals are confined, my answer is it depends on how good your sanitation is, right? If you've got knee-deep fly breeding material anywhere on your farm, you don't know how many flies are there, but I'm sure you can't afford enough to release the parasites to kill them. Honestly, I, I, I've kind of come around to think that, that these parasitic wasps are most useful around horse premises where the sanitation is naturally really good. And I'm not, there have been studies in, in, in uh, dairies in New York, for example, and elsewhere uh, that showed modest reductions in the numbers of flies on farms where they were releasing the parasites. But um, student of mine, forgive me, but I, I, I just can't sign on to a, a blanket purchase of, you know, a, a box of parasites every week and hope that it's going to do any good. I, I like a, a clear answer. Uh, that, <laughs> Was that clear enough? Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. All right. But before we get out of here, I think uh, there's a couple of things that we need to talk about. First is a story that I've heard repeatedly about Roger and honestly can't remember who told me it the first time. Oh, that's comfortable. So, I know. I need to. I need to make sure. Need to make sure it's true. Uh, and we got the source right here. So the story goes that you walked into either a classroom or a meeting, and you had a cup on your arm, uh, kind of suction cup to your arm, and you were feeding bed bugs for a study. Is this is this a true story? You're Certainly could have been. Yes, allowing been. allowing uh -huh. bed bugs to feed on you for a study. Yeah. Yeah, they tickle a little bit. They're not bad. The, the trick is that. to make sure you don't take them home and get the missus pissed off at you. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you got to be real careful. You don't want to transport any. Interesting. Okay. okay. I wonder who told you that story. That's I honestly funny. couldn't tell you, but I've, okay. I've heard it. I think I've heard it two or three times now, and it's, okay. it's a good one. I like that. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. so the other one, and we can cut this if we need to. Uh, Dave Boxer outed you and said that I need to ask you about a story uh, from a West Central Nebraska feedlot in your early days of extension. That's all the information I have. I just there's he said it would come to your mind immediately uh, because it was such a good story. But if if not, maybe we'll have to call Dave. I, 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 I'm not making this up. I honestly, Joe, I don't remember. This isn't prompting anything. I, I mentioned that fellow Jack Campbell. Uh, he hired me as a postdoc to work out of Lincoln, Nebraska, 
and we were working on uh, feedlots in the northeastern, actually, uh, Nebraska. I don't recall ever getting out in western Nebraska, but even in east, east, east central uh, Nebraska, I don't recall any uh, embarrassing events. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to get the story from Dave and then uh, recheck in with you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what he came to mind right away. And I said, you got any dirt on Roger? And he said, yep. <laughs> asking about this time in Nebraska feedlot early extension uh, days. Well, when I when I I do remember when I got there, uh, ne Nebraska's press were all over uh, what the ARS lab was doing in, in out of out of Lincoln, and I remember some some uh, uh, I may actually have a copy of the of the magazine, but it was a you know like beef magazine equivalent to it, uh, and there was a picture of me up to my knees in manure in a feedlot digging for insects you know <laughs> i'm sure the rest of the world thought this guy's a nut <laughs> <laughs> well i think well that's that's one of the things that i've never thought to do in practice uh was actually go look for the breeding grounds oh and, yeah and how how much value does that have i mean for me as a veterinarian the value i immediately think of this is a way to convince someone that it is a problem but the, 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 the same utility for fecals i mean you, you pop a fecal sample and see what the epgs are right okay um, I, I was going to say earlier, uh, if, if anybody is treating for flies, come back the next week and see if it did any good. Be a critic uh, of, about your program and say, is this working or not? You know, and document that. Um, I've, I've been preaching about, I call it scouting or troweling for maggots. Uh, but the, the, the problem is no, no, two, no two places are the same. They have different kinds of debris and all, all kinds of variations on the theme. In half an hour, I can walk a place with a garden, simple little garden trowel, scout around and figure out where the active breeding sites are and start to talk with the producer about how to minimize its suitability for the flies. Scouting is very useful. Otherwise, you're just doing it blindly. You can't find maggots from the seat of your truck. You've got to get out and look around. And it's not that hard. The trick is to identify, see what they look like and know where the kinds of places they look in. And after a couple of passes through your premise, uh, you, you'll you'll find where they are. They wiggle. You can see them. They're they're not impossible. Uh, once once you know how how big they are and the kinds of places you can find them in, and uh, then you can focus management, water management, or debris management. However, you can practice it. You get that stuff very wet. Maggots are not aquatic, so if you get the debris in, under the water, you've killed them all. And similarly, uh, if you can spread them out, they're 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 dehydrating. They're dying, and so. Once you know where they are, then you can think about what's practical. And uh, this, this is something that I, I, I wish more producers could do and, and more extension agents would teach them to do. <laughs> we'll get on it. We'll get on it. I'm interested <laughs> in learning a lot more about it. Uh, I have a trial set aside to do it already because right. uh, we're going to go, as Brad admitted, there might be some breeding grounds up at his place. I think it's, it's probably time to go up there and, and dig around and see what we can find. Uh, Joe and Brad, you, I'm only through about three hours away. There you go. There you and go. I'd be, I'd be happy to come out and uh, uh, see the old digs. Exactly. Absolutely. Roger will show us all kinds of stuff and where we can find flies and maggots. And I'm in. Yeah, I'm it's a good so old time. in. Emily might even time. drive from Rochester. I like that. I would be willing to do that. Yes. Okay. Well, come, come, come to St. Paul. I, I can find stuff here too, you know. All right. Yeah, let's. All right. We can do it where the Blues Room field trip is underway. All right. Well, thank you for being here today, Roger. We really appreciate your time. No, I appreciate your interest. I had a good time. Thank you, Joe.
If you have comments, questions, scathing rebuttals for us, you can send them to the Room at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. Check us out on Twitter at UMN Mooseroom and at UMN Farm Safety. I will put the website, the entomology website in the show notes. So look for that. Thank you everybody for your listening and we will catch you guys next week. Bye. Bye. I can't pass up the soft brown eyes of a jersey. Yes, that is the correct answer. Yes. There you go, Roger. There, there are no wrong answers, but well, <laughs> you made Joe and Brad very happy. Um,